Genesis 3, 1 through 7 this morning. And again, let me go to the Lord and pray and pray with me for his blessing on the preaching of his word. Father, we again look to you as children to their father. We come as those that have no bread, holding out empty hands and begging you to give what you alone can give your people. We pray, our God, that you would feed us with the bread from heaven, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would make us to understand more about you, more about who we are, more about our sinfulness and our need of redemption. We pray, Father, that you and your Son and your Spirit would be exalted and that we would be satisfied and built up in him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 3, beginning in verse 1. Moses now recording the fall says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was the delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, it's interesting that one of C.S. Lewis's most important works, and perhaps one of his lesser known and less read, least read of all his works, is his preface to John Milton's Paradise Lost. And if you want to read a magnificent introduction to Paradise Lost, and if you want to see something of the greatness of both Milton and Lewis, read Lewis's preface. And Lewis, as he unpacks in his chapter on Satan, who is obviously the main antagonist, the one that Lewis will say Milton has painted most magnificently in that epic story, that is built on the text that we're looking at now. Milton will paint him in magnificence, and yet he will paint him in all of the nuances that makes the evil one the evil one. And Lewis, as he goes through and he unpacks some of the allusions and some of the details that Milton includes in that epic, notes that Satan went from hero to general, from general to politician, from politician to secret service agent, and thence to a thing that peers in at bedroom or bathroom windows, and thence to a toad, and finally to a snake. Such, Lewis writes, is the progress of Satan. I was astonished the first time I read that. He goes from general from hero to general, general to politician, politician to secret service agent, and thence to a thing that peers in at bedroom or bathroom window, and thence to a toad, and finally to a snake. He will actually say that Satan is like a peeping Tom, and he's looking now as we come and we look at Adam and Eve in the garden, and we've seen that God has done the most magnificent thing. He's created the world in all of its glory and beauty and blessing and bounty, and he has filled the earth with every kind of good thing, and he has created man as the image bearer, as the crown of creation. And then he, as we saw last week, brought man the 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 
the only thing that was missing, which was the glory and the beauty of the woman, the image bearer with man, and that God had brought them together in marital union, and now you have Satan, as it were, Lewis says, as a peeping Tom. And he will explain that because Satan can't go after God, he goes after the next best thing. And it's interesting as we look at the Genesis narrative and we look at the narrative of Scripture and we see that, that this is moving somewhere and that it is moving quickly, we see that things don't take long. Most of the Puritans believe that Adam and Eve actually fell either on the sixth or the seventh day. I think it would probably be apt to say that they fell on the seventh day on that first Sabbath, right after that wedding, that it wouldn't have taken long. We don't know for sure, but by all stretch of the imagination, it probably didn't take long for God to allow the evil one that he had ordained to fall himself to come in and to come in and pollute the temple and to come in and to tempt our first parents. But we have to understand something about the nature of God's dealings with Adam before we even come to consider the nature of Satan and the temptation and the fall. And so this morning we want to consider three things. First, we want to see the nature of the test. That is the test that God gives to Adam. Secondly, the nature of the temptation. And finally, we want to consider the nature of the fall. Well, notice that back in chapter 2, as Moses is telling us about the garden and the details of the garden, he gives us that one little caveat. He tells us in verse 17 that God had said in verse 16 that Adam could eat of every tree of the garden, but that there was one tree in the middle of the garden of which he could not eat. He will also tell us that there was another tree in the middle of the garden and that those two trees stood out in the middle of the garden in the divine purpose that God had set apart those trees for his purposes. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil from which Adam could not eat, the tree of life that God will expel Adam away from after Adam has disobeyed and taken and eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, what are we to make of these two trees? Well, as I've noted in the past, Adam was a creature, and God is everywhere reminding Adam of his creatureliness. We've talked about this over the last two weeks, whether it was God reminding Adam that he was made from the same place as the beast of the field and that he ate the same food as they ate, that he was made out of the dust of the ground, and therefore he was a creature just like them, or whether it was God making Adam outside of the garden in that primeval dust and then bringing him into the garden, the place of highest blessing, God was reminding Adam that he was a creature or whether it was God showing Adam that he was incomplete without Eve and that man needed woman to help him complete the dominion mandate. God was showing Adam that though he was the image bearer, though he was the greatest of all God's creatures and though he had more authority delegated to him than any other creature and that he was the image of God. He was at the same time just a creature. And God has done one other thing. God has put one tree off limits, one specific tree on the face of the whole earth. God has said you can eat of every tree of the garden. And in that sense, God is saying, you have dominion of the whole world to explore and to extend and, and to enjoy this world that I've made for you. You have dominion. I've given it to you and I've given it to your descendants. Only you cannot eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat of it in dying, you will die. Now, we have to understand that this was not a magic tree. It was not an apple tree. It was not a magic tree. 
It was a tree just like any other tree. It had a specific fruit to it, just like an apple or a banana. It was the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In order for God to make that prohibition and to test Adam, he had to set apart something natural, just like every other tree. It was one tree that God said, I will make this tree the probationary tree. I will test Adam so Adam knows that he's a creature. I will test his allegiance and obedience. In order for God to test man, there had to be one tree set apart for him to test man. Now, because our God is so wise and because our God does whatever he desires and because our God can so invest things with purpose that all kinds of things flow out of it, God had determined in setting apart that tree that Adam, who was upright, who was not fallen, who didn't have a bent toward evil at this point, Adam, as the federal representative of humanity, he was representing us there in the garden. God enters into a covenant with Adam. We call that the covenant of works. And he promises Adam life if he obeys, death if he disobeys. Now you may say, well, I don't see that in the text. All I see in Genesis 2.17 is that he's going to die if he, if he eats of the tree. Well, after he eats of the tree, God exiles him out of Eden. He says, lest the man take and reach and take the tree of life. And so the converse of death is life. The blessing promised is eternal life, that higher life, that secured life. If Adam had obeyed, if he had obeyed the test, if he had not eaten of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, he would have lived. He ate. He brought spiritual and physical and eternal death on all of his descendants. That tree also, and this is very important, that tree also was meant to give Adam the experiential knowledge of good and evil. Now, you may say, what do you mean experiential knowledge? Well, you live every day with the experiential knowledge of good and evil. The problem is we live it on the side of having chosen the evil and rejected the good. Adam gained the knowledge of good and evil. Before he ate of the tree in the garden, before he disobeyed God, Adam only had the knowledge of good. He didn't know what evil was. He had never seen evil. He had never done evil. God was good. Adam was good. Creation was good. The world was good. God intended for man to learn the knowledge of good and evil by rejecting the evil and choosing the good. When Satan came in and turned that test into a temptation, Adam was to reject that. He then would have gained by that the experiential knowledge. This is evil. I reject evil. I have chosen the good. God is good. God's ways are good. God's word is good. He would have lived with the knowledge of good and evil by experience, by having rejected the evil. Adam instead chooses the evil. And the rest of human history, as we know from experience, is now men knowing the good from the evil, having chosen the evil, now becoming evil ourselves, being fallen in Adam, being dead in sins and trespasses. God will actually say in Jeremiah, how can my people learn to do good when they're accustomed to doing evil? How can a leper change its spots? How can an Ethiopian change the color of its skin? God will everywhere bear witness to the rest of the scriptures that we are evil. And that we, fallen in Adam, have gained the knowledge of good and evil by choosing the evil and rejecting the good. That's the rest of the Bible. And so God is testing Adam. God has invested purpose into this tree. John Calvin and many other theologians believe that 
Both the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life were sacraments, just like the Lord's Supper and baptism, that they pointed to something beyond themselves. They didn't have power in themselves to confer anything to man, but that they were representing something. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was representing the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life was representing that life that Adam lost and and should have laid hold on. We'll see, won't we, in the rest of the scriptures, and really in a very real sense, and this is so important, the rest of the Bible is, how do I get the knowledge of good and evil reversed, and how do I get to eat of the tree of life? The rest of the scripture. This is not mythical. And it's, it's interesting. The cross, the cross is both the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. Isn't that interesting that God will reverse what happens after Adam breaks the covenant of works by means of a tree? I never get past that. This is absolutely intended. Peter in 1 Peter 2 says that Christ bore our sins in his own body on the tree. The tree. And how is the tree the knowledge of good and evil? Well, I learn to choose the good and reject the evil because I've been crucified with Christ and he has died for all the evil and all the sin and has died to renew us and to enable us to do good and to reject evil. We gain what Adam lost by means of the cross. How is the cross the tree of life? We gain eternal life because Jesus tastes death for us and takes the curse and is nailed to the tree. It's fascinating. It's fascinating that what Satan does, and we'll come to this in a minute, is he tempts Adam to question the judgment of God regarding the tree and says, surely God will not kill you if you eat. And now after the fall, he says, surely Jesus is not the only means of salvation and the cross is not the only way of salvation. It's a tale of two trees. The scripture is everywhere giving us that. Jesus, Jesus himself becomes the source of the knowledge of good and evil and the source of life for us. And so God is intending for Adam to be tested and he's intending for Adam to learn the knowledge of good and evil and he's intending for Adam to trust him. He's intending for Adam to take him at his word. He's intending for Adam to show forth to to Eve and then after that subsequently to all their descendants that God is God and that this is his world and that he's to be trusted and believed and he's to be loved and adored and worshipped and fellowshiped with and the tree has all of that bound up in it. The prohibition has all of that bound up in it. You know, it's interesting because we know it so well after the fall. We want everything God has forbidden us to have. We know it so well. We show in a 100,000 different ways what Adam shows when he failed that test. But I think it's important for us to realize as much as that impacts you, and, and you may say, how, how does that impact me? You are the way you are because Adam did what he did. You know, it's interesting. I've never, and maybe you have, but I've never met someone who has said this world is the way that it's supposed to be. I've never met someone who said that this world 
is the way it's supposed to be. Everyone I have ever talked to will acknowledge that this world is not what it's supposed to be. The problem is they will not ask the question, why is it the way that it is? They'll point to specific things that they say, this is out of place and this shouldn't be like this. And usually it's outside of their own heart. Look at the wars, look at the, look at the, look at the, the chaos, look at the, look at the environmental abuse, look at things out there, but don't look at my wicked heart and don't ask why. Why are things out there the way they are? Why? Why do I not like things out there? Why does not, this not look the way I think it should look? And they'll point to the things out there, but they won't go back to Genesis. This, this is, frankly, these are the most important things you could ever get. These are the most important things you could ever learn and understand and know. Genesis 3 is arguably the most important chapter in all the scriptures. When I, um, I used to do construction... I've told you how much I hated it every day, um, making nine twenty-five an hour. And uh, I remember one time I was cutting risers for a stair for a staircase, and apparently I had miscut the first step by sixteenth of an inch. That's not very much. That's like a that's a sliver, a sixteenth of an inch. And there were like 20-some stairs on those risers. And we, when we got to the top and we put them up, my boss was livid. It was like that much off. And I was like, I don't know what happened. And he said, you messed up on that first step, didn't you? And I said, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> and we had to cut a whole new set of risers. If we get Genesis 1 through 3 wrong, if we get Genesis 3 wrong, we will get the rest of the Bible wrong. We will misunderstand the world around us. We will not understand. This is, this is the best explanation man has for why things are the way they are. Adam broke the covenant of works. Adam failed to obey the test. Adam brought the knowledge of good and evil down to us experientially from the evil side. Now, it's important for us, secondly, to consider the temptation because you could say, well, if God is in control of everything and God has ordained whatsoever comes to pass and God is sovereign and he is, he's in control of everything. There's nothing that God's not in control of. Satan, in the words of John Piper, is God's lackey. Actually, I want to read this to you really just quickly. Lewis, in that preface to Paradise Lost, actually says, Satan was a creature revolting against a creator, and that means he's a creature revolting against the source of his own powers, including his power to revolt. Satan as a creature revolting against the creator is a creature revolting against the source of his own powers, including even his power to revolt. That means Satan couldn't have done anything unless God had ordained it. Now, James, though, importantly, tells us God does not tempt, neither can he be tempted. And so it's important for us to understand that God tests, he doesn't tempt. If you get cancer, this is going to be important for you spiritually. God brings trying and testing challenges and difficulties into our lives. God is sovereign over every difficult thing that you experience. God is sovereign over every temptation you experience. But he does not personally tempt. He personally tests, and then Satan comes in and turns the test into a temptation. Isn't that interesting that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil becomes the object of God's testing Adam. It becomes the object of Satan's tempting Adam. And that's God's purpose. He works 
through agencies. Satan is a secondary agent. He ordained that Satan would come in. How did Satan get in the garden in the first place? Why was he there? What was he doing? What is God's purpose in this? I want to say this this morning before I say anything else. The fall and everything you read in Genesis 3 is plan A. It's all plan A. God does not have a plan B. If you have mistakenly thought God has a plan B, you do not know the scriptures. God has plan A, and all of this is part of his plan. It was his plan for Adam to fall. It was his plan for Adam to disobey. It was his plan for Satan to rebel in the legions of the armies of the host in heaven and to, to take with him a certain number of fallen angels and to come and to aim all of his malice at God's image bearers, to become as that peeping Tom in the garden where this marriage of love and beauty has been so blessed by God, to aim all of his malice there in all of his pride, in all of his envy, in all of his self-aggrandizement. And notice what, what we're told as we consider the temptation this morning. We're told in chapter 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had, came, had made. Satan, and we know that this is Satan because in Revelation we're told that old serpent, Satan, who is the devil, the accuser of the brethren, this is Satan, and he comes in the most subtle form possible. Now, you may be one of those people that studied at a state university who told you this is all just mythology. This is all just a way for Israel to understand their origins in comparison with Babylonian and Akkadian and, and, and God is and Israel's God against Marduk and other gods. And Satan came in the form of a real, literal serpent. He came, he chose strategically. His temptation begins not in saying anything to Adam and Eve, not in actually doing anything to tempt them. His temptation comes first and foremost in his subtlety. Now notice that the first thing that we're told is that the devil was more cunning or crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now, I don't think that Moses is saying God created the serpent evil. I don't think he's saying crafty in the sense of evil craftiness. He's saying that of all the creatures God had made, the most subtle and cunning, perhaps in its movements and its, and its actions, the most cunning and the most crafty and the most subtle of all the creatures God had made was the serpent. And so Satan said, I will use that creature and I will tempt the woman with that creature. Satan saw something in that. He saw that it was the best creature to use. Now, if you are one of those people that say, well, I don't believe that animals talk. Let me say this this morning. I don't believe animals talk either. I think the two animals talked that we know for sure in human history, one is the serpent and one is Balaam's ass. There are two animals that have spoken in human history. I think that Hollywood is obsessed with talking animals. Mr. Ed probably started that. <laughs> if I see one more talking dog movie on Netflix, I will get rid of Netflix. So somehow, even the unbelieving world is obsessed with talking animals. 
And yet the unbelieving world will say, animals don't talk. And I will say, you're right, animals don't talk. I don't buy into the assertion that, that the animals, they talked and they had some kind of moral ability to connect with people before the fall. I think the point of Satan's subtlety in the temptation is precisely that animals do not talk. And that if you're Eve and, and this beautiful, magnificent, skillful animal comes up to you and starts talking to you, you're like, what's going on? Now, don't tell me if an animal didn't talk to you today, you wouldn't be trying to talk to that thing. I, I wouldn't believe you. If you go home and you tell your wife that an animal talked to you, she'll think you're on some kind of crazy drug, change your medication. But if, if, if you saw an animal talking to you, you better believe you would be astonished at that. You'd be like, what in the world is going on? Moses saw a burning bush that didn't, wasn't consumed, and he said, I will now go see this bush that's burning and not being consumed. <laughs> he was astonished by the bush. Eve was astonished by the serpent's approach to her, him. Now, I think it's interesting that Satan uses the best of the creatures that he can find and uses the best of the tactics he can find. He is skillful in how he approaches our first parents. He uses... He uses, and, and today, Satan uses the most attractive and the best and the most gifted, and Satan uses the most skillful. That is one of his chief tactics. You know, the Bible will tell us, and Paul will tell us, that we are not ignorant of his devices, that we study these things and we consider the temptation because there's a real devil and there are real tactics, and, and, and God gives us these things to know how he works. And the first thing he does is that he comes in the most subtle form possible. He comes in the craftiest of all the animals. He comes talking. He comes unexpected. He comes wondrous. He comes as a wondrous being to tempt the woman. Now, he comes to target the woman. Why the woman? I don't think. As some say, it's because the woman was weaker and more easily deceived. I don't think that that explains it fully. I think that that's a, sort of an easy out. I think a better explanation might be that Satan knew he couldn't get to Adam unless he attacked the thing that was most precious to Adam. That's why he goes after Eve. Adam knew he couldn't get to Adam unless he attacked the thing that was most precious to Adam. Satan is so skillful in his temptation. He's so skillful in what he does. And notice that he goes to the woman and we're told, he said to the woman, did God actually say to you, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? People, listen, this is the first Bible study. It's the first Bible study. Satan comes to Eve and he says, let's have a Bible study. Open your Bible, and let's really see, did God say this? Does that really mean this? Satan goes to the woman and says, come on, let's talk about God's word. What did God say? What did God mean? Did God really, what do you think he meant by this? It's interesting, isn't it, that Satan is so crafty that he comes, he comes stealthily to the woman, he comes wondrous to the woman, he goes to the perfect person to target for Adam, and he comes and he immediately goes for God's word. Notice that he uses and he attacks the ears. John Bunyan has this great book called The Holy War in which he talks about the ear gates and the eye gates and the mouth gate. And John Calvin, in his sermon on this text, actually says that Satan attacked by the ear and it's only in God's providence by the hearing of the gospel through the ear that it's reversed. 
It's interesting that Satan knows that there's something powerful about God's word, so he comes with a counterfeit word, and he attacks by the hearing the, wor- the ear. This is seen in the world today. Why do we have so many religions? Why are there so many opinions? Why are there so many differences? Because there's a devil. Because there's a fallen world. Because God's word is always under attack. Because, because counterfeit doctrine and teaching is the way that Satan operates in the world. It's the foremost way that Satan keeps the world now fallen under his sway. It's the way that he attacked at the beginning. Why would he not continue to attack that way? Paul will speak about doctrines of demons. He will talk about Satan coming as an angel of light and proclaiming a different Jesus and a different gospel. And all of those things show the subtlety of Satan working through the ears of men and women and planting thoughts in the minds of of men and women. Isn't it interesting? Christianity is a religion of the mind as much as it is a religion of the heart. And here at the very beginning of human history, Satan attacks the mind. He attacks the mind of man and woman. He attacks the mind of Eve in order to get to her heart, in order to lead her to disobey God. I love this statement by Martin Lloyd-Jones. Adam and Eve listened to a dogmatic pronouncement unaccompanied by any proof whatsoever. Think about that. You've got the unbelieving world around us today saying, well, science proves this, science proves that. Christianity is not true. Science proves science, science. Ah." Most of it is all theory. Most of it is unaccompanied by any proof whatsoever. And interestingly, that's exactly what Satan does when he comes to Eve. He says... Notice, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He comes with a dogmatic pronouncement. He'll say, God knows that in the day that you eat, you will not die, but you'll become like God. And you'll know good and evil just like God. And you will be like God. And he comes with a dogmatic assertion, unaccompanied by any proof whatsoever. And Eve buys into it. Now, let me say this this morning. If a woman who was more glorious than any woman that you have ever seen and more intelligent than any woman you've ever met, and a man who was more glorious and beautiful and perfect than any man you've ever seen and more intelligent than any man you've ever met, fell to a dogmatic assertion unaccompanied by any proof whatsoever from the evil one, you and I surely are susceptible. I'm going to say that as forthrightly as I can this morning. If our first parents in an unfallen state were susceptible to that, we're susceptible to that. Every one of us. Doesn't matter how much theology you've studied, doesn't matter how how smart you are, how godly your parents were, how young you were when you were converted, every one of us are susceptible. God is teaching us from the very beginning the subtleties of Satan in the way the truth is attacked. Now, notice he questions God's word and I think here there are a few things that we have to understand. First of all, God doesn't tell Adam and Eve that they're to obey him regarding the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because they understand the reason why he told them not to eat of it. This is very important. God does not say, of all the trees of the garden you may eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you may not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, in dying you will die, because I'm testing you to see that you will know that you're a creature and that I'm the creator, and I want you to gain the knowledge of good and evil experientially by it. He doesn't tell him that. We, we talked about that today. And God builds reasons into his commands. All of God's commands have very wonderful, beautiful reasons to them. Thou shalt not commit adultery... 
has a wonderful, beautiful reason to it. You shall not have any other gods before me has a wonderful, beautiful reason to it. You should keep my day holy has a wonderful and beautiful reason for why God gave that. But God doesn't call us to obey because we understand the rationale for why he gives commands. Satan is attacking God's word by attacking, well, do you really, do you really understand the command? And if you don't understand the command, do you really need to obey it? You don't really know why God gave this. Why should you obey that? That's, that's really what Satan's doing first and foremost. He's, he's, he's luring them away to say, unless you understand the reason behind this, unless you think that this is a rational command and I need to obey this because this makes sense to me, that, that Satan is tempting them to say, if you don't, then you don't need to obey it. And then he does some things that are really remarkable. And I want us to focus on this as we consider the nature of temptation, this first temptation and subsequent temptations. Notice that Satan attacks, first of all, the goodness of God, the goodness of God. Notice that he says in verse 1, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, Satan knows that God had said to them, you can eat of every tree in the garden, that God is so full of goodness that he gives the world to man to, to, to explore and to enjoy and to investigate and to study and, and to develop and to cultivate. And that he gave man free access to everything he had made. That man could eat of any tree that God had given him. He could enjoy anything God had made. He could, he could live in the joy of the goodness of God except for this one tree. And what Satan does is he first comes and he says, is God so mean that he puts you in this beautiful place and he surrounded you with all these spectacular trees, but, but he said you can't eat of any of them? And he knows. You see, Satan's always trying to make us have hard thoughts of God. Hard thoughts of God drive men from God. Hard thoughts about God drive men from God. Thoughts that God does things to torture you or because he doesn't want you to enjoy things or he doesn't want you to have happiness or he doesn't want you... And, and frankly, when, when a woman or a man leave their spouse and they say, well, I want to be happy and this person makes me happy, they are having hard thoughts of God. They're saying God has put this other person off limits because God is, is hard and God doesn't want me to enjoy things. Instead of seeing that God gave them a spouse to enjoy and to, to enjoy his blessing in that marital relationship and that the other is not good for them. That, that's exactly what Satan continues to do. And so he first tempts Eve with regard to the goodness of God. And then secondly, he tempts her with regard to the truthfulness of God. Notice he says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? He's essentially saying God lies. The God who made you is duplicitous. The God who made you will say one thing, but he means another. And you have to listen very carefully this morning. When we go through difficult times and trying times, and Satan comes in and he turns those difficult times and trying times into temptations, you get cancer, you lose a child, something hard happens, and fallen man's inclination at the temptation of Satan is to say, does God really love me? And God says in his word that he loved me, that he gave his son for me, that, 
that he's loved me with an everlasting love, that he's drawn me to himself with cords of kindness, that he will love me for all eternity, that he, he has bestowed all of his goodness and mercy on me. And as soon as the trial comes and Satan turns it into a temptation, he gets you to question the truthfulness and the goodness of God. God must not really mean what he says in his word. This is so important. By the way, what Satan does here at the beginning, he does all through human history. Nothing changes. These tactics always work. They worked with unfallen Adam and Eve. They work on you and me. And so we have to be aware that Satan loves to question the goodness of God and the truthfulness of God. Next, he questions the judgment of God. Now, this is very important. Satan says to Eve, notice Eve We'll come and consider her in just a second. But notice in verse four, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Now, I don't know how many of you have tried to witness to unbelieving friends and classmates, but the one doctrine that will fuel more anger and hatred is the doctrine of eternal punishment. If you want to see what people really think and really believe, start talking about an eternal hell that God will send everyone who's not in Jesus to. And Satan, at the very beginning, attacks the judgment of God with regard to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He says, God knows that in the day that you eat, you're not going to die. There's no punishment. There's no judgment. God's not going to do anything to you. There's no consequence for your sin. It doesn't matter that God said the day you eat and dying, you will die, and judgment will come, and the curse, and death, and and alienation from God. God knows. God knows there's not going to be judgment. And then, and this is so sophisticated, Satan then removes the judgment, and then he puts a counterfeit reward in the place of the judgment. Instead of judgment, God knows that you're not going to die. You're going to be like God. You're going you're gonna to be like God. You're going to attain to something higher and better. Remember, God intended for Adam to attain to something higher. If he had obeyed, he would have entered into that Sabbath rest, eaten of the tree of life, had a higher blessedness and a secured holiness for himself and all of us forever. And Satan comes in and says, listen, you're not going to die if you disobey God. Instead, you're going to be blessed. You're going to be like God. You are going to be like God. I read, and I've never, I've never thought of this before, um, in light of the words of Satan, especially in verse 5, you will be like God. Um, Jonathan Edwards had this profound thought where he said, essentially, that um, God ordained the fall so that Christ, the Son of God, would come and take a human nature and become like man and would hang on the tree and would take all of the sin and rebellion on himself and he would unite to himself a people who would be part of his bride and then he would raise them up to eternal glory and Jesus said that he would bring them into everlasting fellowship and that the the fellowship that God the Father had with God the Son and God the Holy Spirit in the Godhead, that those who are in Christ now are brought into that fellowship in a way that they never would have been if there had not been a fall. And that in a sense, what God does is he takes, you shall be like God, Satan's malicious lie, and he flips it and turns it for good and he makes his people to be like him, living in unbroken fellowship with him. It's marvelous. It's marvelous. 
that he takes even what Satan says and he says, now I'll do something you're not even prepared for and I will make my people like me and I will bring them into everlasting fellowship with myself even after the fall, even after the disobedience, even after they've given into the temptations and I'll do that, I will come and I will obey. You know, there's a parallel here, isn't there, between the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, the second Adam. And, you know, probably when, when Eve gives in to the temptation and she looks and she sees the tree and she starts to give in to it and she allows herself to be led further and further along toward disobedience. And, and Moses says she saw that the tree was good for food and it was desirable to the eyes and it was a fruit that would make one wise. It's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. John will tell us that in 1 John. The lust of the, lust of the, the flesh, good for food. Lust of the eyes, beautiful to the appearance, pride of life. Desirable to make one wise. Nature of every temptation falls under those categories. And when Jesus is in the wilderness, the second Adam has come. And he's come to reverse what Adam and Eve have failed to do. And he has to be tempted. He has to be tempted by the evil one. And it's the lust of the flesh. And it's the lust of the eyes. And it's the pride of life. Satan says to him, turn these stones into bread. And, and, and he says, look at all the kingdoms of the world. The lust of the eyes. And he says, throw yourself off the temple and show people who you are. The pride of life. It's those categories. And he comes and he obeys and he conquers. And he, by being tempted and tested himself, overcomes the evil one. You know, the Bible, by the way, if I asked you this morning, if we took a test and I said, what is the Bible about? I wonder if any of you would quote 1 John 5 for this reason. The Son of God has come into the world to destroy the works of the devil. For this reason, the Son of God has come into the world to destroy the works of the devil. And so finally and briefly, we consider the nature of the fall. Notice how Eve gave in. You would think that in an unfallen condition, Eve would be resilient and that she would go to her husband and that she would say, the snake's talking to me and telling me God's not telling us the truth and God's not all who he's cracked up to be and who we think he is, even though he just made us. It's remarkable, isn't it, that God just made Adam out of the dust of the ground, just made Eve from the rib of Adam, and they're giving into a talking serpent. That's how, that's how easily led astray we are. That's how easily allured we are to the world. And notice the, notice the nature of the fall, how... Gradually it happens. Notice, no sooner does Satan say, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? The woman says to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. She's already falling into the trap. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God says, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. I really believe this. Eve is the first fundamentalist. She's adding to God's word. She is. God never said you cannot touch it. No amount of Puritan sophistry saying we should stay as far away from sin as possible will ever account for why Eve said God told them not to touch it when God didn't say don't touch it. She's already begun to think there's something about the tree that, that is in itself wrong. There's something impure about that and we shouldn't even touch it. There's nothing impure about the tree. There was nothing on the tree that said don't eat. There was nothing on the tree. There wasn't a sign saying don't come near this tree. And so Eve has already begun to think improperly about creation and about the goodness of God and about 
the, the freedom that she has as a creature. And she's begun to think wrong thoughts about God's word. She's begun adding to God's word. I said to a friend the other day, you know, Eve is really the first professor of comparative religion because she looks out and she decides, I, I, she starts to decide, I'm going to decide what, what reality is and then we'll talk about other options and then I'll go teach other people about it. I'll teach Adam. And so you see how, how subtle Satan has already been working to pull Eve's mind away from the word of God. And that's, that's the big picture. I mean, if you take very little away from the sermon this morning, take this away. God wants your mind and heart firmly rooted in his word. He wants you to know his goodness and his truthfulness and his faithfulness and his justice. And he wants your mind rooted in his word because Eve, in an unfallen condition, yet mutable with the ability to fall, gave herself over to letting her mind go away from God's word by adding to God's word. Well, yeah, God said that and we shouldn't do this. And then notice the second stage. The serpent tells the woman, you will not surely die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. And notice verse 6, the woman now has put out of her mind that there's any consequence, that there's any judgment, that it's sin against God, and she now decides that she will be the master of her own destiny. She decides, I will be the master of my destiny. I will decide what is good for me. I will exercise my autonomous reasoning and I will take and I will be blessed in the taking. And she allows herself to be lured away, as we said, by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. C.S. Lewis, in that introduction to Paradise Lost, says that Eve went to the tree, actually Milton says this, and low obeisance made low obeisance made. What's the big deal? It's just fruit. How big a deal is that? Fruit. Actually, the sin is not in her taking fruit. The sin is in the fact, as Lewis says, that she doesn't bow to God, but she bows to a vegetable. She bows to herself. She bows to food. She bows to creation. She bows to her own person. And that's the nature of our sin. The nature of our sin is that we bow to ourselves. I want to say this this morning. Um, Adam and Eve realize they're naked. They realize that's, that's not anything innately wrong with their physical bodies, but they realize the guilt and the shame of what's happened. They realize that they've lost righteousness. They, their sin has resulted in them now realizing shame and guilt and fear and terror, and they, they'll hide from God behind creation that God made. They've lost the knowledge of God. We'll talk about that. They've lost, they've lost communion with God. They've lost fellowship with God. Their thoughts about God are now all warped and all corrupted and polluted. And here's what God does about it, because we're just like them. We are every bit like Adam and Eve. We are, we are sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. And God becomes man and enters into this fallen world and takes to himself a human nature that's, that's subjected to all the miseries of this life. And 
he comes yet without sin and he allows himself to be tested and tried and tempted and mocked and reviled. He becomes a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And then he's nailed to the tree. He's nailed to the tree. And here's the magnificent thing. And I've said this to you in the past. The solution to Adam and Eve taking and eating is found in you taking and eating from that other tree on which the second Adam hung naked, shamed under the guilt of your sin, all the guilt, all, the, all that feeling of guilt and that, that knowing you're in a condemned state is placed on him and he's condemned. It was John Henry Newman that said in his hymn, uh, O loving wisdom of our God, when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. O loving wisdom of our God, when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. I want to emphasize this morning that we are to be watchful against the attacks of the evil one. You know, while we trust in a second Adam who has done all things for us, who has merited life for us, who has obeyed for us, who gives us righteousness by faith alone, we are to be watchful against the wiles of the devil. We are to understand the sophisticated ways that he continues to seek to attack. You know, John Piper says, and I think he's right, that Satan is not content with harming your body. He wants your soul. That God has so destroyed Satan's kingdom in the coming of Jesus that now, with what little time left he has, he is aiming all of his fiery darts at the people of God, those who profess faith in Jesus. And we're to, we're to know his attacks, we're to know his subtleties, we're to, we're to examine our own hearts, we're to examine our mo- motives, we're to learn from Eve what not to do. We're to look in faith to the one who hung on the cross. I think, and I'll close with this, that that thought is so important that just as Satan said to Eve that God knows there's no judgment, there's no judgment if you take and you, you eat of this tree, Satan says to you, the cross is not the only way of salvation. There are other ways of salvation. Jesus is not the only way. That's not the only tree you can eat of. You can eat of other trees. You can, God wants you to have everything and to be able to do whatever you want to do and there's no judgment you see the converse and God says that Christ is the way the truth and the life and that no one comes to the father but through him and that the cross is the only way of salvation and Christ crucified is the only means of eternal life let him who has ears to hear let him hear this morning what the spirit says to the church let's pray Father, we pray that you would please help us to take seriously the attacks of the evil one. We pray that you would make us watchful against his wiles and against our own proclivity to fall into temptation. We pray that you would lead us not into temptation, but that you would remind us of the one who was tempted for us and who obeyed victorious and who crushed the head of the serpent and who has delivered us from his tyranny and power and from the guilt and the shame of sin. We pray, Father, that you would... Build us up and make us to look in faith to that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life on which our Lord hung. We pray that you would give us to eat now as we come to the table, that you would grant us to take and to eat, that our souls might live. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.